and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 174. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now today we do have a Q&A lined up for you once again. So Jack, we're going to get cracking on with these questions. The first one, it asks, how can I stick to a meal plan? I'm struggling mentally, not physically even when I'm having soul foods in my meal plan? Yeah, good question. And yeah, I think without knowing too much more about the context of the individual, like whether they're in comp prep, whether they're just in a normal phase of their life where they've chosen to follow a meal plan, um, probably the first thing that comes to mind is, is it actually necessary to be on a meal plan? Mm. And is it necessary to enforce that level of strictness for that particular individual? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point to begin with because I personally don't think that someone's first introduction to nutrition should be a hardcore meal plan. Like that doesn't really teach you a hell of a lot. I personally think that when someone's starting to understand, okay, what sort of foods should I eat to achieve my goals? They shouldn't just, you know, be given some sort of generic plan, which is just the what, but rather they should understand the how and the why. So what I'm eating, which is just on this plan, how is it helping me achieve my goals, right? Mm. So like, why are these specific foods actually keeping me in an energy deficit so that I can lose weight? Or how are these foods, you know, helping me maintain or gain weight? And then understanding a little bit more context behind those rather than just putting a certain plan up on a pedestal. And then if it gets you results, then, you know, you're like, well, it's the plan. It's nothing else. <laughs> so actually understanding what, why is it working for you? Why is it serving you? Mm, for sure. And I personally, rather than using meal plans, I do use meal plans for some people, like one people who just genuinely request them. And uh, I think that it genuinely aligns with their goals the best. And two, I think people in, in comp prep, I think benefit from staying on a meal plan, whether it's one made by me or whether it's one made by themselves and double checked by myself. Mm. And I think rather than following a meal plan, following a meal composition guide, mm. I haven't come up with a specific name for this yet, but well, we do have a bit of a fancy name for it that we like to use in prep and it's called a set plan, mm. <laughs> not so much a meal plan. It's almost like, you know, you know, the movie mean girls. I've heard of it. <laughs> well, Regina George, her mom, she likes to say, I'm not like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. <laughs> so a set plan isn't a regular meal plan. It's a cool meal plan. Mm. <laughs> but either way, it's still a plan that is highly specific with certain foods, with certain meals that will help you achieve your goals. But it serves a purpose, but there's a time and a place for it when it's appropriate. Yeah, I don't think that someone's very first introductions to nutrition should necessarily be a meal plan. It should more so rather be, okay, understanding portion size control, understanding how can I actually build a meal so that it nourishes me? How can I select certain foods that have a good protein component so that I can build a meal with a high diversity of different plants within it? So a good macronutrient distribution between each meal, something that satiates me, nourishes mm. me, understanding portion sizes. Like, I think those should be your really fundamentals rather than, oh, this food, you know, it's magical. Yeah, plus we need to consider that 
meal plan that is given out how many do we look at and see that they're pretty rubbish yeah i know a lot of them are just so devoid of essential micronutrients Mm. it's not uncommon to be given generic meal plans that are just absolutely devoid of any calcium sources which you eat like that for long enough you're going to be saying a big hello to osteopenia and osteoporosis later in life or they're not even meeting minimum fruit requirements some of them don't even meet vegetable requirements Mm. Yeah, typically if your meal plan doesn't incorporate the five food groups, Mm. which are fruit, vegetables, dairy, lean protein sources, and whole grains. Mm. That's a huge one too. A lot of them don't even include enough whole grains. Yeah. I mean, by your standards, there's not much left at that point. (laughs) They're all trash. (laughs) Just do a dietetic consult with me. I'll make sure that you're nourished. But Jack, just coming back to this, how can someone try to stick to a meal plan? Well, I think if... To answer the, answer the question kind of how I started, if you're struggling to stick to a meal plan, then don't do a meal plan. Mm. And if you're not struggling to, with a meal plan, then stay on the meal plan. And that's, I guess, bringing it back to people in prep. Like, ultimately, people in prep who we do encourage to be on meal plans, they really shouldn't be struggling to adhere to them mm. because by that point, they've jumped through all the hoops and ticked all the boxes necessary to be doing a comp prep. And it, we really shouldn't be worrying about adherence in a comp prep. Mm. And therefore, if you are struggling with a meal plan and you're not in prep, as you said, it's time to potentially follow a dietary approach, which has more flexibility, more variety. And rather than going off particular preset meals, I'd go off meal structures. So again, as you alluded to, like, let's say in a lunch or dinner, I try and break it down into each macronutrient. So what is going to be my protein source in this meal? What's going to be my fat source? What's going to be my carb source? And then adding vegetables on top. And then breakfast and a snack, I usually say, okay, let's include some fruits. That way we automatically tick off a lot of the food groups and you have a lot more freedom um, around what you eat, but you obviously portion control is still important. And the quality of the food choices that you consume are also important. Mm. And in that case, you know, you're obviously achieving your goals, right? You're staying well-nourished. Hopefully you're staying within whatever sort of energy budget that's going to allow you to achieve your personal goals, whether that is you're trying to be in a calorie deficit so you can lose a little bit of weight. You're trying to just maintain your weight. You're trying to be in an energy surplus, but it provides so much education almost like repeatedly. So you're constantly getting reminders of like, oh, this source of food, it's actually a decent source of protein or this source of food, it's a decent source of dietary fiber and carbohydrates. Also, if you go out to a meal and it's not a normal composition that you would normally have at that time of day. So for example, let's say that you do go out to breakfast and you order some eggs benedict which yeah it's gonna have some carbohydrate content (laughs) in it because of a little bit of bread but it's probably gonna be a lot higher in dietary fat with the egg yolks and obviously like the benedict sauce and everything maybe some butter on the bread oh the the benedict sauce there you go guys i do not order obviously eggs benedict very often (laughs) but you might recognize that okay i would normally have my oatmeal with yogurt and fruit in the morning and that has some dietary fat in it but it's usually a lot higher in protein and carbohydrates whereas this eggs benedict meal or (laughs) eggs hollandaise meal that i just ordered it's a lot higher in dietary fat so it allows you to be like okay later in the day maybe you can then you know kind of try to balance things out where the other meal compositions you're trying to create 
are higher in carbohydrates, a little bit lower in dietary fats. Mm. Yeah, so it just really helps to provide education, which I think is long-term the most sustainable. So, so that someone can be independent with their nutritional choices. They're not always reliant on a coach for the rest of their life to tell them what to do. And they truly have an understanding of why am I eating in this manner? And so that when you do follow a certain structured plan, like a set plan or a meal plan, you actually understand why it's actually giving you a certain result. It's not because, ooh, these foods are magical. It's just that, oh, these foods have a certain energy density and a macronutrient composition. Yeah, it's uh, nutrition can seem very complicated on the outside, but once you break it down, it's it's relatively simple. Mm, yeah, understanding- Not to kind of downplay our, our role as dietitians. <laughs> no, but ultimately understanding the why behind things. I think that's what a good coach is always gonna do. They're always going to try to instill their clients with knowledge and education so that one day they can be independent, but also just always drip feeding in that, why are we actually doing this? Not just, you know, giving instructions. Mm. Yeah, but I do think, and you'd probably agree too, that set plans and meal plans, obviously they do have a time and a place. So maybe it's just appropriate for us to talk about what are some of the benefits of following a set plan? For example, when someone is in a comp prep. Well, one, if you follow the plan, you get results essentially, (laughs) if the plan is constructed well. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, a weight loss is... the majority of the time I'll use meal plans in weight loss. Like Mm. I very rarely use a meal plan in a surplus because I find that in a surplus, you need to make changes far too often. It's just a pain to alter the meal plan whenever someone's body weight stores, which Mm. can be very, very often sometimes. And people should definitely have more flexibility when they're in a surplus as well. But in a deficit, those changes are ideally less frequent. So if some, if you set a meal plan for someone and they might not even know the calories, which is, sometimes also a blessing for the individual as well. Because if someone does have to diet on lower calories and they're on, let's say, 100 grams of carbs, but they don't actually know that and you volumize the meal plan well, then they just follow that, they get results, they don't worry about it too much. Mm. And I would say that's one of the major pros. Mm, Absolutely. I think having that sort of just psychological reassurance for sure. But I think another thing is that it just controls for a hell of a lot of variables. You know, if there's less moving parts in a plan, then you can pretty much be guaranteed that changes in scale weight are going to be a lot more highly correlated with changes in actual tissue weight opposes to just changes in food bulk and sodium content, hydration status, etc. Because especially in a comp prep, like you're working toward a specific deadline. And if you start your prep at let's say 20, 25 weeks out from that show, there's literally not time to kind of be sorting these sort of little things out. And you just, you don't have the time to be fluffing around to just say it quite frankly. So if you can control certain variables, then take advantage of that, particularly as myself, like a female comp prep coach who predominantly just works with female athletes, Female athletes are generally small little human beings. (laughs) You know, we're talking about working with women who are anywhere in the realm of probably 60 kilograms or less on stage, usually even less. A lot of girls end up on stage around the 50 kilogram mark. And when you are trying to lose weight at a 0.5 to 1% of someone's body weight per week, let's say that you do even have a 60 kilogram female and 
0.5 to 1% of her body weight per week is literally 300 to 600 grams on average of weight loss per week, demonstrated through actual tissue weight. If you do have someone who, yes, they're following a macronutrient guide and they're hitting their macro targets each day, but every single day they're eating different levels of food volume, they're intaking different amounts of sodium, hydration status is changing, meal composition, meal timing is changing, etc. Like you can have so many peaks and troughs in terms of someone's scale weight, which can just completely skew the data far beyond 300 to 600 grams. So you aren't hundred percent confident whether you're in the know of man, like I swear these macros, it would have to have you in a calorie deficit, but your scale weight, it's just not reflecting that. And it can give the competitor and the coach just unnecessary head spins. So to actually avoid those sort of things, I think actually controlling for basically every single variable, very similar food choices, similar macro composition per meal, similar meal timings, etc. And it just actually allows you to have a much smoother journey so that an inappropriate call isn't made, right? If someone actually isn't a calorie deficit, but it's like, man, scale weight's actually up on average this week. Obviously we have a deadline to work toward. We need to meet this rate of loss. If you increase someone's cardio or drop their food and just unnecessarily put them into an even larger deficit, you could have avoided that. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of merit in just controlling variables, particularly in a prep. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I think you said that well. And I think the last thing is just it highly eliminates food focus. Because interestingly, this question did say, you know, I'm finding it hard to stick to my meal plan even when I am including soul foods. Like, yes, you and I were all for including foods that you enjoy. You don't have to live a life devoid of dark chocolate after your dinner. God forbid, <laughs> but at the same time, including a few too many, <laughs> not mine, but it's many people's, you know, I think people's soul foods are a bit more soulful <laughs> than dark chocolate. Oh, uh, you'd be surprised, <laughs> but either way, like including foods that you do enjoy, but also recognizing it's a balancing act and sometimes trying to include too many foods that are highly palatable, absolutely delicious can actually work to your detriment because one, they just have you more food focused than necessary. <laughs> it's mm. actually, hopefully it's never necessary to be food focused unless I'd say maybe you're in a position where you're actually in, where someone's actually really trying to fight their body weight, push up into new territory, eat in a calorie surplus, but their appetite's so low. That's actually a point where you probably want to be a bit more food focused. So food's more enticing or someone that just, you know, they just don't eat enough in general during the day they need to pay more attention to their diet quality but if you're in a deficit like don't dig yourself into an even deeper hole and just make it even more unpleasant so mm. well, i guess if, if you're in a deficit are you really and you're hungry are you really craving those so soul food food soulful foods <laughs> or are you just desiring food in general yeah. because if you're depriving your body of energy chances are you might be misinterpreting those signals of wanting or craving foods, even though scientifically we don't really crave certain mm. foods unless in special circumstances. So chances are you just need food in general, not those soulful foods, but there definitely is room for those kind of foods as Tierra said, but in some, in comp rep, and I know we're referencing a lot of this to comp rep, but Hey, that's <laughs> kind of who we are. It as, is a bodybuilding dietitian podcast. Mm, <laughs> the risk to reward ratio potentially isn't there for 
those more palatable energy dense foods because one they will reduce your total daily intake of food volume mm. and they'll also probably skew your body weight as well and they'll increase your food focus as well yeah absolutely like just things that are just too delicious and again you're just constantly thinking about them man you just almost want to somewhat try to avoid that territory if you can otherwise it really can just make you very very food focused and it, it's not pleasant to be in that sort of position so i think if anyone's in a comp prep it's just encouraged that you're goal focused you aren't food focused and just try to make the entire process as breezy as you possibly can mm. yeah so that doesn't mean that your meals have to taste like absolute trash. Like you can put herbs and spices on things and yes, like even low calorie condiments and stuff, but I wouldn't be going out of your way to just drown your food in like sugar-free maple syrup, making everything crazy sweet, you know, like cooking your food in, in oil or just making things super crispy so that when you finish a meal, you're like, oh man, I really wish there was more of that. Like it's a given, you're probably gonna be a little bit hungry especially toward the tail end but like you know there's certain ways to actually manage these things so at least you can try to be as satiated as possible and you're just not left with like this desire to keep eating all the time so it's a balancing act find yours yeah <laughs> all right moving on to this next one jack how do you drink your intra-workout should you sip it throughout the workout or should you finish it before the first one to two exercises yeah, well, I think I'm better off answering this since I drink into workout. Mm. So I think there's also a variety of different reasons why you might have intra workout and that'll probably influence the answer to this question. So for example, I drink intra workout. The main reason is to boost my carbohydrate intake for the day and probably of secondary importance to that is provide me with fast acting carbohydrates uh, for the session itself. But considering I'm in a very, very fed state and I have breakfast beforehand, which is quite digestible, it's a smoothie, then the secondary reason is, is of, of fairly low importance to me. Mm. And there's still emerging evidence. Like I recently finished uh, Lawrence, the General Muscle podcast episode with Eric Helms, and he said there's still emerging evidence around mouth rinsing carbohydrate for resistance training. So... We can't say really yet at this point in time whether the the mouth rinsing aspect or even just the taste of carbohydrate beverages improves performance, but we kind of know that any sort of intra-workout amount, regardless of the quantity, does actually in fact improve resistance training performance mm. potentially. And there's kind of like a correlation between the more volume you do in that session chances are it's going to improve your performance more. Mm. So it's going to be more useful. Absolutely. There's a huge psychological component there because we do actually have certain receptors in our mouth that can detect glucose. And again, there's there's a lot of new literature coming out in this sense. Is it just glucose or is it just the sweet taste, right? Like, could we almost hack those those receptors by just using something like an artificially sweetened drink? And there's kind of a few like sides for both. So it's not exactly clear cut, but we definitely know that there are certain receptors within our mouth that can detect that sweetness of glucose that then shoot up to our brain and it just activates that reward system. And it can actually help with our endurance, our stamina, our motivation during the session to keep pushing. 
particularly like in that second half of the resistance training session where perhaps you might have finished some of your compound movements, you're moving on to the isolations. Sometimes, you know, you might only give 75% to your leg extensions or leg curls or people have that mentality of, oh, I just got to get it done. It's like, no, (laughs) you're in the gym to do a job, do it well. So give it your best effort, give those leg extensions a hundred percent. But sometimes actually having a little bit of a boost and a bit of a sweet taste in our mouth from, you know, an intra-workout carbohydrate drink or like some mouth rinse that actually might help. Something you've employed yet. I just personally haven't actually found the need for it yet. It's something that I do want to experiment with but if you've future? never used it and you don't know what you're missing out I on. I know. I'm living off your anecdotal experiences. I'm living off my client's anecdotal experiences. But at least for me personally, like I, I personally don't find that my energy dips throughout a training session. One, because I have like, right now I'm eating about 350 grams of carbs per day. And my pre-training meal is close to like 150 grams of carbs. And we go train like 45 minutes after that. So I feel like I'm good from a glucose department. (laughs) And also I think that me coming from an endurance background as well, I've always just had that kind of element in me to just keep going and keep giving it my all. But it is something that I might experiment with in my next prep in those final, you know, number of weeks where energy does dip (laughs) and energy definitely has dipped for me in the past, but I've actually never experimented with intra-workout carbohydrates in my past preps, but that's something I might consider in future. But either way, there is literature out there to say that having some intra-workout carbs, it definitely just helps from a psychological standpoint. But I think there's a lot of merit in taking them for different reasons. Like you said, if your carb requirements are high for the day and energy requirements are high and you feel like you're just full of food, then yeah, maybe having like close to 30 to 50 plus grams of carbs during a training session, that might just be an easy way to get it in. Or if you're training first thing fasted in the morning and you don't have anything to eat prior, then having a bit of intra-workout carbohydrates might be beneficial. The literature though on like pre-workout nutrition, even that's a little bit mixed. You know, there's no perfect answer. It really comes down to the case of you just don't want to be hungry during your workout. You don't want to feel like you're hungry, you're food focused. You're like, oh, let's just get this done so that I can go go eat my oatmeal. (laughs) Like you want to be 100% present and focused and really giving it your all during that training session. So you just don't want to be hungry. And so maybe well, I, I would say personally, the closer you are to being fasted mm. or the further you are, you are away from your previous meal, I would even say it might even be better to just drink it before. And that's kind of what Eric said mm. on, on his most recent podcast with Lawrence. And I agree with him because I actually, for the, probably the last six months, I've actually been splitting half of my intro in my pre-workout. Mm. And then I've been having the other half in the session. Mm because that way you reap the benefits really immediately rather than waiting beyond the first couple exercises, which are arguably the most important anyway. And yeah. Yeah, I guess it just depends on what mechanism of action is it working through? Is it actually working through, okay, yes, spiking your blood glucose levels so that you do have more glucose running through your body? Or is it like that almost immediate psychological reward of, okay, tasted something a little bit sweet. I'm ready to just finish this set. Mm. Yeah. A few different things there, but I guess to fully answer the question, 
it depends. Entirely <laughs> just depends on those circumstances. <laughs> yes. It's tough to go wrong. Like the only thing I would say is wrong is if you're having the bulk of it in like the latter half of your session. I mm. would I would recommend personally finishing it before you're halfway through the session. Mm. Yeah. Even if that I usually just chug it all in one go when I'm about a third of the way through or something. Mm-hmm. All right. This next one, it's also a training related question, Jack. It says, do you use RPE as a measurement through your program or are you just pushing to failure on all your exercises? Yeah. So I feel like RPE probably like a couple of years ago used to be an incredibly hot topic and now somewhat fizzled out a bit, but mm-hmm. it's still of course very important. And to answer that question, I use a mixture. Mm. To describe my training style, I don't set reps in reserve for myself, or I don't really even set reps in reserve or specific RPE for any of my clients in terms of how they progress throughout a training block. I think for most people, unless you're either a complete beginner or very, very advanced, or maybe like have a particular strength style sport like strongman or powerlifting, then for bodybuilding, if anything, we have it a little bit easier. Like the goal is to ultimately progress and to achieve progressive overload while stimulating the target tissue precisely with like good execution. So therefore, as long as you're not skimping out and going too low on the intensity, then I think arguably if your training volume is sufficient and it's not excessive, then it's almost a little bit hard to kind of achieve those fatigue-like symptoms that everyone talks about by training too hard. Mm. Like for example, myself, I train pretty damn hard. I don't take everything to failure. I take most upper body movements to failure or to mechanical failure and lower body. I would say I stick to around like zero to three reps in reserve, but then I can still do a full six week training block training five days a week. So I think that sort of argument there for achieving fatigue too quickly, unless Mm. you're incredibly strong, which isn't the average person or the average bodybuilder. Yeah. I'm not sure whether you'd agree with that. Mm, No, I would completely agree with that. I think a lot of people in the gym actually needs to be more concerned about not training hard enough rather than pushing a little bit too hard. And I think it's probably important that we define some of those acronyms. So like RPE stands for rate of perceived exertion and RIR is reps in reserve. And you and I even did a TBD post on this recently talking about how, yeah, I guess semi-recently in the past few weeks, few months, few months, whoops, scroll down the TBD Instagram page. You'll find it RIR versus RPE and how to actually rate them. But they do somewhat go hand in hand because the higher the RPE, the lower the RIR. So generally if someone was like, I had an RPE eight on that movement. That means that they probably could have pushed for about two more reps if they really, really tried. So the higher the rate of perceived exertion, then you would assume the less reps in reserve that you would actually have. But rather than programming someone, you know, I want you to leave two reps in reserve on this exercise, or I want you to aim to train between a seven to eight RPE. Because the literature shows that people are generally so poor at being able to accurately gauge their RPE or their reps in reserve. I think it's actually a lot more appropriate to just aim for progression, like you said. So let's say that you're doing dumbbell shoulder press. Last week, you got three sets of eight with the 15 kilograms. 
aiming for progression based on last week's performance. This next coming week, I still want you to lift the 15 kilograms. I still want you to perform three sets, but I want you to aim for at least one set of nine and then hit another two sets of eight if you can. If you get more than that, that's awesome, right? But as long as you get one set of nine, two sets of eight, that's one additional rep compared to what you did last week. That's progress. I think actually being able to track load sets, reps, that's going to be a hell of a lot more feasible for a lot of people to be progressing long-term rather than just, you know, estimating, "Mm, I think I've had about that many reps in reserve left there. Or I think my RPE was about this. I personally only rate RPE (laughs) and RIR in hindsight. It's never something that I'm actually aiming for. I never go into a set and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to leave three reps in reserve on this movement because leaving three reps in reserve sometimes like, man, if I've got three reps left in reserve, I'm at least pushing for another one or two, you know, like that actually wouldn't be enjoyable training to me. Mm. (laughs) Personally, I like to just rate it in hindsight and be like, that was a really freaking tough set. Like, I do not think I could have possibly pushed for one more rep. Or if I did, there's a really good chance I would have truly failed. Yeah. Yeah, again, I push for progression. So usually at the stage of training that I'm in, it's mainly just aiming for one rep improvement. Mm. And it might only be across one of my sets for that particular exercise. Like if I'm lucky, I might get progressions across both sets, which is great. And as I said earlier, like typically the lower body movements is where I'll even unintentionally leave more reps in reserve. Or if I improve my set by one rep and I know I could do another rep, if I really wanted to, then chances are I'm still just gonna leave it as, as one rep because I know that incrementally each week it gets harder and harder to tick off those improvements in the lower body so it makes more sense for me to kind of leave a few extra reps or more like one to three reps in the tank Mm -hmm. um on something like a sldl or a leg press or a squat but some of course leg extension leg curls etc are quite different Mm -hmm. absolutely but i don't think that that kind of goes to show that you and i for the most part we train near failure or close to failure for the large majority of our movements and for our sets. But I don't personally think that's like inherently a bad thing, provided that you're just doing it intelligently. And particularly if you're like bodybuilding and hypertrophy training, you know, we're not lifting loads that have us testing like one to three rep maxes sort of thing. You and I, for the most part, are probably working within like a six to 12 plus rep range for a lot of these movements. So it's not like unreasonable resistance that we're trying to just take on to our bodies. Mm. (laughs) So I think that's, it's a lot safer in that sense, but that's obviously why for more strength sports and powerlifting sports and stuff, you have to apply an even higher level of intelligence and like programming to it to be like, no, 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 no. You're not going to failure on this. <laughs> like, even if you're trying to hit just one rep on your squat, like you should probably be lifting a load that you know that if you really wanted to, you probably could pump out a two or three. Well, yeah. And it's also, you would think it's easier to gauge reps and reserve on lower rep ranges as well compared to higher rep ranges. Oh yeah, sometimes for sure. Cause like sometimes you just never know, <laughs> you know, like you might be aiming for like a set of eight on an OHP and like the, the way the weight starts to move at the beginning of the set, you're like, hell yeah, this is it. But you hit the fifth rep and you're like, 
oh God, am I even going to hit like six? Like it's amazing how quickly the fatigue can set in. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's quite nuts. <laughs> but I guess that's to answer that question. All right. Well, Jack, final question we'll finish on for today is what happens to the body when bodybuilders stop training? <laughs> this is something my mom always asks me. <laughs> it's something that I don't even think about because I don't think I'm ever going to stop training. Mm. <laughs> but seriously, like if, if you and I just, you know, tomorrow woke up, we're like, it doesn't matter if it's Monday legs, we're not going to rigs. <laughs> What's going to happen to our bodies? What's going to happen to our, to our legs? <laughs> well, I think maybe some people uh, have a misconception about how big natural bodybuilders are. We're not that big, unfortunately. So It's a lie. <laughs> it's all an illusion. <laughs> so it's not like we're, unless they're referencing like Olympia 250 pound bodybuilders on stage, like that's a little bit different because mm. I, don't, I don't know, take a look at Arnold, take a look at Ronnie Coleman. Like they do have a lot of loose skin. They look... I don't know. I think they look fine in, in most senses, but they're great guys, but they have atrophied. They have atrophied, of course. Yeah. So obviously you do atrophy and natural bodybuilders will atrophy as mm. well. Atrophy is just a fancy word for they've lost muscle mass. Mm. Yeah. So I don't think there's really too much else to say. <laughs> like you, if you stop draining, you lose the muscle. Well, no, that's not necessarily, that is a little bit grim. Come on. So no, if you just stop training tomorrow, you're not just going to go poof. You know, there goes all your gains. Like, I th if, let's particularly talk to natural bodybuilders, okay? Because yes, enhanced, again, depending on the degree to which you push your body weight and what you were having to do to actually be that body weight, if you pull back from that in terms of the amount of drugs that you're taking, the amount of food that you're eating, of course you're going to atrophy, right? Because you are going to such extremes to try to get there. If you're not maintaining those extremes, then you're not going to look as extreme. So you're mm. going to lose some muscle mass in that case. But let's say we do have a natural bodybuilder who, you know, they just want to take six months off the gym and they're going to, you know, go hiking through Europe or something like that. Like what's going to happen to their physique? And let's say they're like 85 kilograms. Yeah. Well, I think they would, they would still lose a decent amount of muscle, but it does come back very quickly. Mm. I can't say how much muscle they'd lose, but they'd, they'd probably lose quite a decent amount in six months. Mm. Um, Even if you're still staying active and healthy and, you know, relatively just like moving your body, what's decent in your eyes? Well, I did take four weeks off the gym once, so a full month Yeah. when I had my back issue. And the thing is, I didn't really have that much muscle back then anyway. <laughs> But at the same time, you were very in control of your nutrition too. Mm. So didn't you just maintain weight during that time? Yeah, I did. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like your body composition just changed, that you just gained a bunch of body fat and lost all your muscle mass. Mm. I'd say for the most part, you maintained pretty well. You didn't lose a decent amount of muscle. Yeah, but that was only a month. So Okay. Anyway, there's this question. We need more context anyway but <laughs> essentially yes if you stop training who are you and do you even have muscle to lose <laughs> yeah if, if you stop training it you lose muscle like mm. if, i think we do know that in order to maintain your muscularity it really requires a lot less work than what it took mm. to build so even if you i don't know took up another activity like crossfit then chances are you'll probably actually maintain a hell of a lot of them mm. or maybe even all the muscle that you have but if you go from being a bodybuilder to a couch potato then you'll probably end up looking like a potato as well <laughs> 
but over time it won't happen overnight <laughs> yes but no one said that it would happen overnight yeah that's true but i again i think that's a good point in the case of like it's a hell of a lot harder to build muscle in the first place than it is to maintain it and it comes back very very quickly so even to just maintain your current level of muscularity you need about probably one ninth of the training volume that it took to actually build that muscle mass so that's pretty freaking amazing to be honest like let's say that well, one ninth so what if you had to do let's say 18 sets a week well, I, only of, do, I only do like 10 sets of hamstrings mm, so what i only have to do like one, one to two set sets. yeah but let's say like a girl was working really really hard to build her glutes and she was doing like 18 sets of like direct glute work per week you bring that down to two Maybe you could maintain a decent amount of that size on that peach, <laughs> but it's not just the muscle mass either. Like obviously then if you go back into the gym, depending on how long it's been like actually being able to lift weights, it doesn't just come down to how much muscle mass do you have on your frame. It's about how accustomed are you to certain exercises, especially from like a neurological standpoint as well. Like how much is your nervous system actually kind of prepared to, and also accustomed to having a given amount of load in that position. So if you did take certain amount of time off, like you would need to probably ease back into your training to get back up to your previous numbers. But the muscle mass, it is regained at a very, very quick rate. For example, like if you're coming back from an injury, like let's say that someone did break their leg and they were in a cast for a number of weeks. And yes, their leg is going to atrophy because they're not really using it. Once they can get back into resistance training, that muscle does come back fairly quickly, which is really good. Yes. Yeah. But uh, overall, okay, natural bodybuilders, provided that you just don't have an identity crisis or yes, turn into a couch potato and just stop doing anything, it's probably going to be a sweet long time until you actually lose all your muscle. Like you could be that person, you know, who someone's like, wow, do you go to the gym? You're like, oh, I actually haven't been in about four months, but you still look, you know, fairly muscular, <laughs> which is good. But I think that if someone is pushing their body to the extremes through the enhanced route, then yeah, they are going to atrophy quite a bit. Moving on to the last question of the day. So that is something that we learned this past week. Well, do you want me to go first or you? Uh, you can go first because I, I have a feeling I'm going to say the same thing as you. So Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Are we telepathic? <laughs> At this point, probably, yeah. All right, well, something that I learned this past week is that you can't fool a fish. <laughs> is that what you were going to say? Something about fish. <laughs> okay, but at least it wasn't you can't fool a fish. But Jack and I, we have gotten into fishing recently, which has been a heck of a lot of fun. We have caught four. And yesterday caught... So it's about one per two, every two hours, I would say. Uh yeah, maybe, but it's, again, it's, you don't go fishing to catch a fish. You go fishing for just the enjoyment of the whole process of being out in the sun, being out in the water, you know, like, am I going to catch a fish today? It's like, you know, kind of, kind of that hope, that anticipation, but either way, we started off using a lot of lures and we weren't really having any luck recently swapped over to bait and lo and behold, fish you know they like their own kind they are a bit of you know cannibals and you can't fool a fish so that's just what i've learned recently is that you know they don't fall for for the lures fake stuff you know you got so the whole lure industry is, <laughs> is void now you heard it here first you know <laughs> your number one fishing resource the bodybuilding dietitians podcast 
Well, I'm not. I'm not quite saying giving that claim out. You can, that can well, be no, that's a, anecdotally. That's what I've learned. I cannot. So the fool. first time we went out, I caught. I caught something on a soft plastic. So. Yeah, but then you know, it was the one that got away. Pretty sure Katy Perry wrote a song about that fish. Called what? The the one that got away. Right. I think that's what it's called. Well, at least that's what she sings. <laughs> Those are some of the lyrics. But yeah, I anecdotally cannot fool a fish. I need to use a pilchard or a little bit of prawn, you know, something with a head. And uh, I... You kind of still are fooling it though because you, you're putting dead meat on a hook. No, it's hungry. It's going to eat it. I think that I'm not sure or not, but like lures, I can only imagine some of the really, really nifty ones. They should have a scent to them. Right? They like they don't just look like some sort of little fish. Like they should actually they just smell like a fish. So like they should like dip them in like, you know, like dead fish remains. Yes. Or live fish remains actually. <laughs> fish oils. <laughs> but anyway, I've had a lot more luck now catching fish with bait compared to lures. Yesterday I caught what I thought was a flathead, but then I was corrected on Instagram was in fact a flounder. Well, that was what I learned. Is that they? Actually, I thought they were the same fish. <laughs> so I blame you for I, I incorrectly labeled my fish. Well, you started screaming. Oh, I caught a flathead. No, I said I got one. <laughs> Get over here! I finally caught one. <laughs> and but the cool thing is, is that here in Queensland, flounders there's actually no legal size because Jack, you know, he was just not convinced that this thing would hit our protein threshold, and he was like, "No way is that thing gonna give me at least twenty grams of HBV." Put it People back. People are gonna actually think you, I said that. <laughs> Well, it is true, isn't it? (laughs) Like if we were to fry up a fish at night, it would be our primary protein source. You do need at least 20 grams of protein in that thing. No, I need at least 45. Oh. Because it's 0.5 grams per kilo. Well, yeah, clearly my, my, the size of my flounder just did not suffice. So Jack put him back in the ocean. But I learned here, this is another thing I learned here in Queensland, at least flounders, there's no legal size. You're just only allowed to catch 20 a day. Mm. only you know i've been fishing multiple times i caught i this was my first flounder and last time we went fishing i caught this little baby brim yeah and what i've caught i think two brim and a flathead mm-hmm. yeah so but, that's actually five but we are yet to catch one that we can actually put on the barbecue mm. yes but you know all, all in good time right now especially now that we've swapped over from lures over to bait well i might go back to lures sorry <laughs> Yeah, okay. Well, then I'll keep using the bait then. Sounds good. Yeah, I'll get the catch. All right, guys. Thank you very much for tuning into this podcast. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we'll catch you next week.